Hi, hello, and welcome to the Physionic Podcast, or welcome back to the Physionic Podcast. If you're not familiar with who I am, my name is Nicholas Verhoeven. I'm a PhD candidate in molecular medicine, and I'm a cell biology researcher, and that's actually the credentials that I'll be using to substantiate my, I guess, this podcast <laughs> on this particular topic, uh, along with the scientific review that I'll be going through. So the topic for today is going to be looking at sirtuins, you may have heard of sirtuins as the anti-aging uh, molecules. You may have heard of them in relation to diabetes. Uh, there are a number of different ways that they've been discussed, but sirtuins are molecules. And they've become pretty popular of late, especially with uh, research out of uh, David St. Clair's lab, who is kind of the anti-aging person or one of the chief anti-aging researchers. But that's not what we're going to be focused on in this podcast. We'll be discussing the diabetes aspect, the mitochondria aspect of sirtuins. And so the first thing I'm going to be doing is kind of giving us an introduction on kind of diabetes. And then I'm going to go into a bit of basics on mitochondria, uh, maybe a little bit more than basics on mitochondria. And then I'm going to go into sirtuins and kind of what they are. And then the, re the relationship of sirtuins to mitochondria and their potential benefit against diabetes. Uh, so if that's what you're interested in, then certainly stick around. Uh, but that information is not coming off the top of my head, although well, a lot of it will be, but uh, it's actually based off of a review that I read actually for uh, my research that I thought might be interesting for the physionic community. So uh, this review is out of the International Journal of Molecular Sciences, and it's called uh, Roles of Mitochondrial Sirtuins in Mitochondrial Function, Redox Homeostasis, Insulin Resistance, and Type 2 Diabetes. So that's what we're going to be going over. Or that's what I'm going to be concentrating for you. Uh, now, granted, I'm going to have some visuals as usual that go up for, for anybody who's watching and anybody who's listening. Uh, well, <laughs> honestly, I suppose this probably applies for everyone. It's going to be a bit of a complex topic. Uh, certainly going to be going into some molecular biology, some cell signaling within the cells. Uh, I'm going to be describing a little bit on the insulin cascade. So once insulin binds the cells, what happens inside the cells to actually translate information from outside of the cell inside the cell. So there's going to be a lot. Uh, but hopefully I can do it justice. Hopefully you are able to follow along. And if you can't, uh, feel free to ask questions in the comments section if that's on the audio podcast or if you want to hop on over to the video version. Uh, that's, that's where I usually uh, see most of the comments. All right, so with that said, without further ado, let's go ahead and jump in. So diabetes is really noted. I mean, there's a number of different definitions for diabetes related to insulin, related to blood sugar, but we're just going to go with uh, high blood sugar, high blood glucose, same thing, and uh, systemic metabolic abnormalities, uh, mainly being like insulin resistance, for example. Um, so it's divided into type 1 and type 2. We're going to be focused on type 2. Uh, which is usually just insulin insufficiency uh, or defective insulin response. And really those kind of go together. So that the pancreas is constantly generating so much insulin and producing it and releasing it out into the bloodstream 
but the peripheral tissues, the muscles, uh, the other cell, like the liver, I mean, any, any, anything that's outside of the pancreas that get, uses insulin uh, becomes insensitive. And we're going to discuss exactly how that insensitive, insensitivity actually happens uh, in a little bit once I go into the cell signaling. So insulin is secreted, like I mentioned, I'm kind of going off of my notes here just for, for some clarity. Uh, insulin is secreted by the pancreas when you have elevations in blood sugar. So let's say you consume carbohydrates and you have an increase in blood glucose, blood sugar levels, then that stimulates that blood sugar goes into the, into the, uh, into the pancreas. And then from there, you end up having an increase in insulin release. Now, let me go ahead and hop on over to this kind of visual here. So you have this chronically high level of blood sugar that eventually leads to all kinds of different issues down the road. Um, so insulin then in a normal situation would lower the blood sugar by binding to all the peripheral cells, let's say muscle cells, bone cells, whatever it might be, and then allow those cells to then take up that blood sugar, thereby reducing the blood sugar back down to its normal levels. Now, with fatty acids or fat molecules, um, you can also get that influx from the bloodstream into, uh, into a particular, like adipocytes or fat cells. So, and it also inhibits gluconeogenesis from the liver because the liver shouldn't be producing more glucose, shouldn't be producing more blood sugar because the body already has sufficient amounts. And there's also a repression of lipolysis in the fat cells, which is kind of what I already went over. Not only does it take up uh, fat molecules, the fat cells not only take up fat molecules, but they also, uh, insulin inhibits the breakdown of fat from the fat cells. Um, and allows the glucose uptake by the fat and muscle cells, as well as many other cells. So type 1 diabetes, however, and that's characteristic of, well, a, a little bit characteristic of both uh, types of diabetes, but type 1 diabetes specifically is also known as juvenile onset. And although it's not always juvenile onset, it can actually uh, show up much later in life. And it's caused by an autoimmune attack on the uh, beta cells, which are part of the pancreas. And that ends up leading to insufficient insulin release. So while type 2, on the other hand, is insensitivity to the insulin in the peripheral tissues. Again, anytime I say peripheral tissues, I want you to think uh, like muscles, bones, liver, all kinds of other, uh, anything outside of the pancreas. So that's also part of your body. Now, chronic hyperglycemia, which is a fancy way of saying uh, high blood sugar, which is type 2 diabetes, then that can actually lead to increases in inflammation and oxidative stress. And again, I'm going to discuss exactly how in a little bit. Um, but that leads to peripheral neuropathy, meaning that um, you have tingling sensation and the loss of sensation in your feet, in your retina, in your uh, eyes, in your fingers. Uh, and that's really with a really highly progressed disease state. So a type 2 diabetes that is, has been around for quite some time, as well as a cardiovascular disease. So it uh, increases cardiovascular disease risk, or it's very much associated with, you know, like heart disease or uh, peripheral artery disease, things like that, which affect, of course, your entire circulatory system, your veins, your arteries, things like that, because 
you get more of what's called glycation of the, the red blood cells, which can then lead to uh, less ability for those red blood cells to move through the finer sections of your bloodstream, which then leads to a backup, which then leads to uh, formations of potential plaque formations and uh, atherosclerosis and arteriosclerosis. Okay, that was a bunch of fancy words, but the point is that high blood sugar promotes uh, neuropathy and cardiovascular disease, as well as other pathologies, but these are the ones that I kind of focused on, and that's through increases in inflammation as well as oxidative stress. Okay, so mitochondria, however, generate cellular energy in the face of several nutrient stimulations. And that can come from glucose, that can come from blood sugar itself, and it can come from fat. So fat goes through a process known as beta oxidation, and glucose or blood sugar goes through uh, glycolysis. And in doing so, in the production of energy through the mitochondrion, you get a byproduct of reactive oxygen species, which are synonymous with oxidative stress. So mitochondria, by their nature, produce oxidative stress. And that's not necessarily considered a negative until it's overdone or overblown. So in what situations might that occur? Well, that tends to happen when you have an overnutrition of blood sugar and fat together, then overstimulate the mitochondria to, to mass produce uh, ATP or cellular energy and have this constant byproduct of reactive oxygen species. So you have more and more of these reactive oxygen species being made. So mitochondria, however, don't just make reactive oxygen species. Uh, they, you know, obviously they run through what's known as the TCA cycle, which is uh, found inside the mitochondria. I don't have a picture of it, but it's a series of enzymatic reactions that allow for the production of ATP. Um, and that can also be used for uh, fat oxidation. So fat use, so fat molecule use, so you consume fat or you consume glucose and you have oxygen present, then it's gonna go through the TCA cycle and it's gonna generate energy. However, it can also help in the production of ketogenesis. So it produces ketones. So in the liver, it would produce ketones and then export those. And it's also part of the urea cycle and heme synthesis. So it, those are important because like for example, iron, uh, some of the components of the mitochondria are made up of iron or need to have components that are made of iron. And without those, you don't get this production of cellular energy and therefore you get uh, cell death and mitochondrial death. So there's accumulated evidence, however, that points to mitochondria being the main culprit in insulin resistance and type two diabetes. Now, <laughs> I, I am a mitochondria researcher uh, and I am always highly cautious of any review or any researchers that study anything in particular and they say, oh yes, this is the reason for, uh, for some sort of dysfunction. And in this case, we're talking about uh, diabetes. But according to these reviewers, according to the, this research, uh, they say that it's the main culprit for insulin resistance and type two diabetes. So some of the evidence for that is from mouse models, so animal models, which certainly have their limitations. So mouse models with mitochondrial genetic defects, so 
uh, defects that are in the genome that uh, force mitochondria to not function as well, for example, or to not have as many mitochondria or whatever it might be. Um, and that has led to defects in glucose and fat metabolism. So exactly what I was just talking about. Glucose going through glycolysis, ending up in the mitochondrion, or fat going through beta oxidation, also ending up in the mitochondrion. Both of those then end up generating energy, and of course, by a byproduct, byproduct reactive oxygen species, or oxidative stress. So that can cause a pathology like diabetes. If you can't regulate your blood sugar, if you can't pull your blood sugar out of the bloodstream into the cells, into the peripheral tissues, or you have an excess amount of fat in the bloodstream that can then lead to this insulin sensitivity and can lead to uh, diabetes. So overnutrition leads to an added pressure uh, on the cellular system leading to more reactive oxygen species production, as I mentioned. Now, leading if you have too much of this reactive oxygen species production, it can start creating havoc and damage on the components of the cell, not only the mitochondrion, but other aspects as well. So, uh, obviously trying to reduce that as much as possible is certainly beneficial, and we're going to touch on how sirtuins actually affect that, that process. Um, so I'm going to go ahead and explain now some of the mechanisms or one of the, I guess, the primary mechanism by which oxidative stress. So just to, just to recap, you have overconsumption of glucose, sugar, carbohydrates. All those are synonymous. They're the same thing. And fat molecules then lead to an overproduction of reactive oxygen species by the mitochondrion, and now we have a bunch of reactive oxygen species in what's called the cytosol of the cell. So not only affecting the mitochondrion itself, the structure of the mitochondrion, damaging the mitochondrion, and it does that by chemical means, molecular means, essentially just ripping away different electrons from uh, different uh, parts of the cell. That's as detailed as I'll go with it. Just know that ROS, uh, reactive oxygen species, do damage to other areas of the cell. So not only to the mitochondrion, but also in the cyto cytosol of the cell, which is where the rest of the cell is, not just the mitochondrion. Okay, so let me switch back over to uh, my graphics here then. All right, so typically what would happen in the insulin cascade, so let's take react, react, reactive oxygen species out of the equation for a second, and let's just look at the insulin cascade. So you've consumed some carbohydrates that has elevated your blood sugar levels. That blood sugar enters the pancreas. The pancreas then secretes insulin. Insulin levels then rise. Insulin then binds to the peripheral tissues. The cells that make up those peripheral tissues are bound by insulin at the insulin receptor. Now, if you're visualizing this for the first time, I'm actually remembering to use the right screen to actually point this stuff out. So you have your insulin receptor, you have insulin that's in the bloodstream, it binds the insulin receptor, and which ends up dimerizing, that's a, a, a cell biology term if any cell biologists are out there. Uh, ends up dimerizing and that dimerization process, because it's uh, what's known as a tyrosine kinase receptor, will allow 
for the phosphorylation, or let's just call it the activation of a downstream molecule inside the cell. So outside of the cell is insulin. It does not enter the cell. It stays outside the cell, but it interacts with this receptor that is partly outside of the cell. It has what's called an extracellular domain, and it has then an intercellular domain as well, intracellular domain inside the, that's also part and inside of the cell. So once insulin binds, it leads to a, a change in this receptor on the outside, which also changes the inside. Once the inside has been changed, then you have a molecule, a protein known as IRS, which is uh, the insulin response substrate or insulin re receptor substrate, which will get near this insulin receptor and it will be phosphorylated or it will be activated. And then that will in turn lead to a cascade of other events through like um, PI3 kinase and AS160 and a bunch of other molecules, other proteins that serve particular functions downstream of IRS that will allow blood sugar into the cell. So suddenly you have the cell has now been activated through a variety of different cascades, a variety of different proteins to then allow blood sugar into the cell. That is what would normally happen, all right? Now, there are scenarios, however, as we detailed earlier, with overnutrition, where you get this high production of reactive oxygen species by the mitochondria, which then wreak damage, wreak havoc on the rest of the cell. Now, some of that damage can occur to what are known as kinases. Kinases are proteins that add phosphates, just like the insulin receptor added a phosphate to IRS, kinases do the exact same thing. They are kinases. That's why I call this uh, insulin receptor a uh, tyrosine kinase, uh, tyrosine receptor kinase, tyrosine kinase receptor. There's all kinds of different ways to, to jumble that up. But ultimately, what it does is it adds a phosphate to IRS. That's what the insulin receptor does. Now, these kinases can also add phosphates to IRS, but what they'll do is they'll add a phosphate to a different section of that IRS molecule. Now, they will add it to a serine site. That's why they're called serine kinases. And this is a very general family of kinases. And the reason why they'll do that is because they've been activated by ROS. So ROS will interact with these serine kinases. I've kept this relatively general. And they will then phosphorylate, once they've been activated, phosphorylate IRS. Now, what does that do? Well, it actually, it actually inactivates or invalidates the effect of IRS. So IRS, which would normally be activated by ins the insulin receptor, now no longer fulfills its function. So insulin is binding. It's doing all of its functions to the insulin receptor. The insulin receptor is dimerizing. You have the changes on the outside. You have changes on the inside. But IRS, which would normally interact with insulin receptor, might still interact and might still get phosphorylated at its normal site but because there's already a phosphorylation at another site, at the serine site, then that disallows or inactivates the rest of the cascade. So IRS no longer functions as it's supposed to. And obviously then you don't have the uh, entrance of the blood sugar from the bloodstream 
into the actual cell uh, section in here. As you can see, I've labeled it inside the cell and outside the cell. Those are for good reason. Okay, so there is the insulin cascade in pretty simple terms. Uh, if you didn't find that uh, simple, then, uh, well, welcome to cell biology. Welcome to molecular biology. Um, so a few of those serin kinases for anybody that's interested are like J and K, junk, what I like to call junk, uh, PKC and IKK beta. Those are just a few of the different serin kinases that can be uh, negatively affected by uh, oxidative stress. Okay, so that is a background on diabetes. That's a background on insulin cascade, how insulin functions. That's a background on mitochondria. Now let's go into sirtuins. Okay, so sirtuins are, in humans, let me go ahead and start there. In humans, there are seven sirtuins that are, have been identified, sirtuin one through seven. I don't know if maybe, I don't think we'll end up discovering any other ones uh, because we know the genome, but what we do know is there's seven sirtuins. And these sirtuins, which are just proteins, just like how I described our IRS earlier, just like how I described the serine kinases, the IKK beta, PKC, J and K, all of those are proteins. Sirtuins are no different, they're proteins. So these sirtuin proteins, one through seven, uh, have particular functions. And one of those functions, or a few of those functions, is through metabolic, regulating metabolic pathways through what's known as post-translational modifications. So PTMs. Now, post-translation modifications can be something like what I described earlier, a phosphorylation event where you have a phosphate that's stuck onto a protein. That is an example of a post-translational modification. However, sirtuins are not related to phosphate groups or the addition or removal of phosphate groups. They are related to uh, acetylation events, so acetyl groups. So what they end up doing is that they control metabolism through deacetylating, meaning that they remove acetyl groups from proteins. One of the key proteins that they remove these acetyl groups from is histones. Histones are related to DNA, so that's where our genes are kept. So typically with acetylation is if you have an acetyl group on a histone, it will open the genome up in that cell. It will open it up. Now, sirtuins control that by removing the acetylation, and that will then close the genes up so that they cannot be read or are less readily read. So that is one of the main functions of sirtuins. Now, sirtuins are highly, highly conserved, evolutionarily speaking as they are conserved in not just humans, they're not just found in humans, they're not just found in a series of different animals, they're also, also found in yeast. And they're found in all kinds of different cell types. So they are highly conserved, so they clearly have been around for a very, very long time. So we have sirtuins one and two that are located in the nucleus and the cytoplasm or cytosol, which I, what I was talking about earlier. 
Also have sirtuins 3, 4, and 5, which are found in mitochondria. That's what we're going to be focused on. And then there's sirtuins 6 and 7, which are found in the nucleus or related to the nucleus. And sirtuin 1 is known to play a role in insulin resistance. So we might also be touching on that. So anytime I'm talking about sirtuins, I'm talking mainly about 1, 3, 4, and 5. And sirtuin-1 is known to play a role in insulin resistance by transcription regulation of key genes. So specifically talking about what I was talking about, uh, the removing this acetyl group off of a protein that might be related to the genome, in this case histones, although that's not what histones look like if you're looking at the podcast. Just know that histones are proteins just like in any other protein. Sirtuins can interact with that protein, and if it has an acetyl group, it will remove it. So it's logical to think that sirtuins in mitochondria can also play a role uh, through their deacetylation process. Again, deacetylation, last time I'll say it, hopefully, is removing acetyl groups. So that will typically inactivate a protein. Not always, but typically inactivate a protein. Okay, so in, in more complex terms, if, if you'll allow me, uh, you have sirtuin, which is technically, I mean, sirtuin is the name of the family of different proteins, but those proteins extend beyond just sirtuins. They're called NAD-dependent deacetylases. So they are dependent on the molecule NAD, and they deacetylate, which is exactly what I'd explained. So it takes an NAD attached to an ADP molecule. An ADP molecule is a spent ATP molecule. So it is a uh, used up cellular energy. So it still uses, the, the cell still uses those ADP molecules, those uh, spent ATP molecules. And it's attached to an NAD molecule, a nicotin, um, nicotinamide molecule, and removes the acetate group, so the acetyl group that I was talking about, and then removes that from the protein. So that's generally, and it typically leaves a nitrogen group uh, on that protein as, as a result. Is this more information than you need? Yes, but sometimes, sometimes I feel like I just, I, I need to nerd out a little bit. So hopefully it'll allow me. Usually people are okay with it. They, they, they're okay if I, if I start going into a little bit more of the chemistry or biochemistry of things. Um, so every once in a while I like to, to throw it in there, even though it does not add to the story and it certainly doesn't add to the clarification of things. Let's just go back to saying sirtuins remove uh, the acetylation from proteins. Okay, so sirtuins that are related to mitochondrial respiration so redox reactions, if we go back to our, the title of this review, mitochondrial function and redox homeostasis, well, that is related to mitochondrial respiration, meaning that mitochondria will use oxygen plus the, the without going too much more detail, the fat molecules and the glucose molecules that I mentioned earlier, plus oxygen, will com combine and be used to generate cellular energy and as a function with that oxygen end up creating reactive oxygen species 
the oxidative stress that I was talking about earlier. So these sirtuins are related to that in that they tend to have an effect on that mitochondrial respiration, uh, specifically the proteins that are, that are responsible for that mitochondrial respiration. If you are familiar with basic biology, you know the electron transport chain. That's what I'm getting at. Uh, so the glucose and the fat molecules and the oxygen all combine in the electron transport chain, and I'm definitely skipping a few steps there in my explanation, and it ends up spitting out the ATP and the reactive oxygen species. So sirtuins are related to that, are, are involved in that, but also through have an effect on the insulin response, and kind of indirectly, as I'll explain in just a little bit, uh, as well as stem cell differentiation, which is essentially stem cells deciding to go, to turn into particular cells. So that's really important for our general health and well-being as well. And SNPs, which are known as single nucleotide polymorphisms, uh, in sirtuins, so different technically called variants or mutations in the genome for sirtuins, uh, leads to changes in longevity and metabolic syndrome. Okay, so an example of that is sirtuin-3. If you're deficient in sirtuin-3, uh, that is linked to an accelerated aging, increased cardiovascular disease risk, increased fatty liver disease, and increased insulin resistance. So clearly, sirtuins serve a pretty vital function in that they must protect our body somehow. We'll go into how in just a, just a second but they must protect our body somehow to allow us to stay younger, for us to avoid insulin resistance, for us to have uh, better health outcomes when it comes to cardiovascular disease, things like that. And one of the main mechanisms is through reductions in uh, oxidative stress. So again, as mitochondria produce this oxidative stress, there can sometimes be from overnutrition, overconsumption of food, can lead to mass amounts, mass amounts of react, reactive oxygen species, but sirtuins will then reduce the level of those reactive oxygen species. Now, if we go back, that means that then we have less that's affecting these serine kinases, which will then, less of those serine kinases will then affect the IRS protein and will then allow insulin to have its function inside the cell or through the insulin receptor into the cell. So that's one of the mechanisms by which sirtuins can have a, a, a real benefit. So it promotes mitochondrial respiration by deacetylating and thereby activating the respiratory enzymes. So the electron transport chain, there's four, depending on how you define it, four to five proteins that work together in the mitochondrion to produce energy and again, as a byproduct, end up producing reactive oxygen species. However, if you can speed up the process by which they produce energy, there tends to not be an overload of these reactive oxygen species. Now, sirtuins will go in to the mitochondria or be related to the mitochondria. Remember, uh, the three, four, and five sirtuins will be in the mitochondria or related to the mitochondria associated and will deacetylate the electron transport chain to the point where then it will increase its activity. This then drives down reactive oxygen species and increases cellular energy. 
Now, again, going back to, as one example, the loss of sirtuin-3, which is, again, that one of the mitochondrial-related ones, you have lower ATP levels in a variety of different tissues. This has been tested. This has been researched already. And it also interacts and activates, again, through deacetylation, a particular protein known as pyruvate dehydrogenase. Now, Pyruvate dehydrogenase is one of the linchpin proteins that allows glucose, blood sugar, after it goes through glycolysis, to then go into and have an effect in mitochondria to be used for energy. So with less of this PDH, or pyruvate dehydrogenase, then you have less of the glucose that's allowed in, and that has its own consequences. So sirtuin 3 however, or sirtuins in general, deacetylate this pyruvate dehydrogenase and allow, it's essentially like thinking about um, like a highway system. They essentially allow more lanes open to have more nutrients flowing inwards, but on the back end also have more of the exits open to function. Because you don't want just the nutrients to just flood into the mitochondria and then just to sit there something needs to happen with them. Otherwise, they end up uh, going through uh, oxidation and you have tons of different problems. So ultimately, what you want is not only the, the highways to open up more lanes, but also to have more exits so that those nutrients can then be used up and to go to their respective locations. And that's what sirtuins do. They're kind of like the oil. They, they allow the machinery to function a little bit faster, a little bit more rapidly, a little more smoothly. So eventually, this, uh, this opening up of this pyruvate dehydrogenase allows more glucose to get turned into acetyl-CoA. Acetyl-CoA then can be used uh, for a variety of different things, but one of them is uh, energy production. Another one is to be used for acetylation which is the exact opposite of what sirtuin does. Sirtuin uh, removes the acetyl groups. Now you can have the reacetylation, not by sirtuin, by other, uh, by uh, acetylases. So sirtuin is a deacetylase. You can have other enzymes, other proteins known as acetylases that can then take acetyl-CoA and end up acetylating other proteins. Now, why might that be advantageous? Because you need some feedback systems. You can't just have all the, you can't have the taps running at full power all the time. Uh, so you have uh, feedback systems that then will go in and reacetylate certain proteins to then shut off or close down particular lanes of the highway, as well as close down some of the exits further on. So in that way, sirtuin can have an effect. Uh, sirtuin-3 is also involved in mitophagy of damaged mitochondria. So that is autophagy of damaged mitochondria. So you have autophagy that gets upregulated, an increase in autophagy, and then that gets targeted towards uh, mitochondria specifically. And it does that by upregulating a particular protein known as parkin, which is highly implicated in autophagy. Matter of fact, I have other videos on that. Actually, our lab has studied parkin, and uh, I, pu I published with my uh, lab members uh, a paper looking at an alternative pathway 
for autophagy of mitochondria. That is not Parkin-mediated, but in this instance, we're talking about the Parkin-mediated uh, autophagy of mitochondria or the destruction of mitochondria. So sirtuins allow that to happen or encourage it to, to happen. It can also be involved in mitochondrial calcium concentration regulation. Now, in mitochondria, I'm realizing now how much information I'm, I'm, I'm giving off. Uh, at least I did give a warning that this was going to be complex. Um, so mitochondria have inside of them these, these pores or proteins that allow for different exchanges of different molecules. One of those molecules is calcium. Now, if calcium is too great inside the mitochondria, it will, it will eventually lead to the bowing outwards of the mitochondria. The mitochondria will start to bow outwards, and you can get uh, punctures, and it ends up uh, leading to the mitochondrial destroying itself. And eventually, enough of that happens, you get cell death. So, sirtuins can have an effect by decreasing the concentrations of a particular protein known as the mitochondrial calcium uniporter, the MCU. So if you have less of this MCU, then you have less calcium entering the mitochondria. And you want some calcium in the mitochondria because it's also helpful for um, the polarization inside the mitochondria. I'm not going to go into detail with that because that's I'm already going off in all these different directions. But the point is that you want some calcium in the mitochondria. You don't want too much calcium. So the MCU is the main way that calcium enters the mitochondria. So in stress conditions, insulin resistance uh, can be really anything, any sort of pathology that affects mitochondria, you can sometimes have an overblown amount of calcium inside the mitochondria, which end, then en ends up leading to stress to the mitochondria and potential uh, death of the mitochondria. So sirtuins combat that by reducing the amount of the MCUs that end up inside the mitochondria, thereby regulating calcium. Okay, so hopefully that made sense. And sirtuin-3 also, or sirtuins in general, also protect DNA by deacetylating deacetylating glycosylases. Now, glycosylases are particular enzymes that will go into your genome, and if there are little point mutations, meaning a single nucleotide is mutated, it's not in the correct orientation, uh, it's not the correct uh, base, so if uh, it's if you have, let's say, uh, I don't know, it could, it could be like you have different nucleotides, you have different um, chemical structures that make up your genome. And if one of those is out of place or you have the wrong one in, in that location, then your cells recognize that and they typically recognize it. They recognize it unbelievably often. Uh, there's like, 100 million to one chance that the mutation will not be recognized. But if it is, then you need these enzymes like glycosylases to come in. And what they do is they flip out the, the bad mutation, the mutation in general. It doesn't have to be bad, just mutation. And will end up uh, cutting it out, allowing for a new uh, base, potentially, most likely, the correct base to then be placed in its stead, therefore correcting the mutation. 
Now, sirtuins will deacetylate this glycosylase, thereby activating the glycosylase and thereby leading to more of these glycosylases going around fixing these mutated genes. So this glycosylation, not or this, uh, I'm sorry, this uh, deacetylation by sirtuin not only activates these glycosylases, but also make sure that they don't get degraded because if you have uh, acetyl groups on this glycosylase, it will actually lead to more degradation. So if then obviously degradation, meaning that then you have lower amounts of the glycosylase. And finally, it, sirtuins also seem to deacetylate superoxide dismutase, which is a uh, antioxidant. It's an antioxidant that's innately found in mitochondria or around mitochondria, and they will actually nullify reactive oxygen species. So not only does sirtuin help control the reactive oxygen species by helping the electron transport chain, it may also uh, help the superoxide dismutases, uh, thereby stabilizing the amount of superoxide dismutase, just like it does with glycosylase, and thereby reducing reactive oxygen species through a variety of different mechanisms, through the ETC, the electron transport chain, but also through uh, these antioxidants. Okay, so that is a lot of information. Uh, <laughs> I, can, I, can, I can feel the complaints. <laughs> it's tough. It's tough to distill this stuff. It really is. Um, when I'm on the fly, I'm trying to think about like your psychology, how much you might know, how much I know, but like how much is really important for me to say, you know, I, I hate it when researchers or people that are, you know, in the science field go way off on tangents because it might be interesting uh, to some people, but to a lot of other people, it's just, it's, it's too much. Uh, but, you know, on the other hand, I also don't want to be one of those people that doesn't explain things and it's just like sirtuins good mitochondria mitochondria powerhouse of the cell like that's not what physionic is it's it's very much detail oriented and um so hopefully you allow me some of that leniency and i understand that i, I tend to i tend to have people that are like just get to the point make three minute videos explaining this stuff and it's like yeah all right i mean i do that for the most part but you know i think the podcast is a way for me to just uh, relax a little bit and not have to sit there and be super efficient with the time that's uh, that's allotted. So in these molecular biology, uh, I don't know, lectures, whatever you want to call them, explanations, they, I'm leaving out so much information, I can tell you that much. Um, so whatever information I'm giving you, except for the few liberties I allowed myself in this podcast, it's, uh, it's, it's necessary and it's uh, it's all in the, uh, the the idea of giving you details, but not overburdening you with too many details, and uh, you know repeating myself a little bit so that uh, you can. Because I know I know what it's like to be a student. I know what it's like to be a student. Your eyes glaze over, uh, and even if you're super engaged. Sometimes you, you need a little repetition. You need a little different, different words to describe the same thing, different perspectives on a particular issue so that you get the, 
uh, a, a variety of different ways that a, a, a thing is said, a concept is explained. But anyway, I digress. Uh, so if you made it to this point, then thanks for, for getting to this point. And let's go ahead and jump into the conclusions. And I will try to wrap this up as speedily as I can. Okay, so the conclusions, the takeaways. Uh, no, I just I can already tell there's going to be a supplement question. Where can I supplement with sirtuins? How can I increase my sirtuins? It's not the point of this. Maybe in the future I'll cover that, but this review didn't cover any of that stuff. Uh, this is just general information. If you want to look up how to increase your sirtuins, uh, maybe that might be beneficial. Just don't get just don't get roped into a charlatan, please. Okay, so conclusions. There's an interplay between type 2 diabetes and mitochondria. We mentioned that reactive oxygen species by mitochondria end up leading, um, or mitochondrial dysfunction leads to increases in oxidative damage, meaning that you have more of these reactive molecules that are created by the mitochondria, and that damages uh, the signaling molecules like IRS from the insulin cascade. And it's not like it's specific just to insulin cascade. It affects all kinds of other things as well. So it's not just this one pathology. Um, so then those damaged signaling molecules that would normally translate the binding of insulin on the outside of the cell to tell the cell to allow blood sugar into the cell now no longer can do their function as well. However, sirtuins can help by preventing these events or at least uh, lowering them by modifying the mitochondrial proteins to be more active. I was talking about the electron transport chain and causing the entire mitochondria to be more active, as well as reducing mitochondrial stressors on the mitochondria through uh, changes in gene expression. So uh, talking about more mitophagy, uh, more superoxide dismutase, more glycosylase, things like that. Uh, and then that will lead to increases in antioxidants. So proteins or molecules that will nullify reactive oxygen species when they become too too much. So, and like I said, all of this is explained uh, in greater detail throughout the rest of the podcast. So don't think that if you skip to the conclusion that you just got the entire podcast, you didn't. Uh, I just went over just a few highlights. But if you really want the details, please take the time and go through the podcast and you will learn uh, to your heart's content. And please, of course, ask questions. Uh, if if you still have further inquiries. All right, with that said, that's where I'll leave it. And uh, thanks for stopping by. It's been a long one, 45 minutes or more. And uh, I will hopefully catch you in the next one. Have a good one.